1: Welcome to Administrative Static. This is John Vecchioni and uh, Mark Chenoweth, uh, and we have starting um, out this program with another in a series of court decisions on various kinds of vaccine mandates. And in the state of Louisiana, the state of Indiana, and the state of Mississippi versus Joe Biden, Joseph R. Biden Jr. in his official capacity, along with uh, other the various defendants, has had a chance to look at the contractor mandates. Now, to remind our, our audience, um, there were various types of federal vaccine mandates. And one of them that is we have a case on and is still up in the air in the Supreme Court is the contractor mandate. And that is that everybody who contracts with the federal government has to have their employees vaccinated to a certain amount. Um, and that this was done under the procurement act, which is a act, which Congress passed to help the, the, uh, administrative, uh, agencies procure, um, goods and services in an efficient manner. And it, and it's directed at economic efficiency. Um, so this is an opinion by, uh, Graves, Willett and Engelhart, and judges, uh, judge Engelhart wrote it. And, and there's a dissent by judge Graves, but, um, this is another major questions doctrine case. So in this case, uh, and it only applies to the states of Louisiana, Indiana, uh, Louisiana, Indiana, and Mississippi. It's not a nationwide uh, injunction as far as I can read it. Um, and it's very, it's very interesting because they, the, the majority here goes through how this Procurement Act has, has worked. And the first real use of the Procurement Act was to um, forbid anyone contracting with the United States to discriminate on the basis of race or color or national origin. And um, it strikes me that there are a number of other um, statutes that do that now, but this was from the 40- 50s. So, um, so the president said that, look, w- we think that for efficient um, economic uh, procurement, we can't have people discriminating on basis of race. And if you look at, at the segregation laws that were, in, in, that were um, enacted and still in, in place when that was done, they were very economically in, inefficient. There was a big reason um, where you could tie that to economic inefficiency. So that didn't go up to the... That was approved. And then the next one was uh, George Bush said that there's going to be, um, you had to use E-Verify. If you were a contracting with the United States, you had to show that your employees were legally working in the United States. And that didn't go very far. I think that was a district court decision that said, yeah, that's okay. So um, now all of that was before, um, you know, before this major questions doctrine had been, um, had really been fleshed out uh and and so they go wasn't even a gleam in the eye they yeah so they go through they go through these um these various cases in in great depth i think um and how it's been used in the past and then they compare it to this it's something like 20% of the um federal workforce is involved here and the lower court had said that this violates the 10th amendment um and uh and and, and he even they he they kind of did a little bit of uh, jujitsu in that they used these uh, Supreme Court's vaccine cases to say that look this is for the states this isn't for this isn't for the federal government so he used the Tenth Amendment that, that was for the states do vaccines and health health and welfare that was left to them
0: oh because of uh, police power yes.
1: Correct. And, and, and just in general, uh, because the, the 10th Amendment says, you know, all these other things are left to the states. So um, and. In any event, so so they said, hey, look. We are not going to go in there and figure out. We, we say nothing about the Tenth Amendment. We're not going to say anything about the bounds. The Majority says we're not we're not going to get involved in the Tenth Amendment. And there's a lot of controversy over the Tenth Amendment. Like Bork didn't think it meant anything, and other people think it means a lot. They don't want to get in the weeds on this. I think is what's going on, and so they say yes, nice nice try there, District Court. We're not going. We're not we're not fleshing out the Tenth uh, Amendment. But they did say is look, this is. Uh, Definitely, um, although it says economics, it's about health and welfare, and it is a major um, change in our laws on health and welfare. Uh, And the president and and nothing in the Procurement Act or any of the language or history of the Procurement Act um, allows for this. But there's another problem. The government wouldn't give them a limiting uh, proposition. They couldn't limit it. So all over this thing, at,
0: at oral argument? I want
1: to, yeah, at oral argument or in the writing, they said the president, they say there's the nexus test that has to have a nexus to the economy and contract, but they said that's too loosey goosey. The president would have little difficulty under the close nexus test, finding a close relationship between economy and efficiency and a requirement that all federal contractors certify that their employees take daily vitamins, live in smoke-free homes, exercise three times a week. Or even at the extremity, take birth control in order to reduce absenteeism relating to childbirth and care. And apparently, the government said that last one would have constitutional problems. But they say for the
0: purposes, only, of, only the last one. Yeah, <laughs> only
1: the last one. But but also that. But they say yeah, it might have other constitutional problems, but it it doesn't violate the close nexus test. So so the government wouldn't say where the, where it ended. They did not want to cabin the power the president has in the procurement act. Uh, to, and, and they note you know, the other thing they note cause, cause, um, the government also said, well, wait a minute, a lot of employers require everybody who works with them to be vaccinated. And they said, ah, ah, ah. and this might be a tea leaf for, for for medical freedom. Well, we, they say, this is not, um, them acting as an employer. This is, this, this is more of a regulation of other people in 20% of the market. And they are not a regular actor in the market. Because they have non-economic aims and those non-economic aims that uh, other employers have. And, uh, you know, the, the United States is, is has other aims and does things non-economically. And, and they say, look, the government doesn't even make this argument to its credit. We're just bringing it up. So they sort of they haven't come out with the feds for Medical Freedom and they sort of separate it from this order. So I didn't like that. I was like, hmm, why? Why is that in there? um because they
0: well that's an en banc and this is just three of the judges from the it's en banc, right?
1: it's true and they cite they cite that it's before them we have just heard it in en banc they say it but i didn't i didn't like them differentiating it uh in, in this opinion so um but the opinion is very good both historically well, one
0: assumes they wouldn't stick their necks out too far i mean they have to know right. how the en banc is coming out at the time that they read this right or write this.
1: i hope so yeah i mean i hope they all know and they're, they're not like uh, in in surprise, uh, I assume things are being written up there. Who knows? Um, so the the other thing, there there were standing issues that were easy, that apparently the states are federal contractors themselves. They the lower court said that they can't do it. Uh, Paris uh, what is it? Paris, Paris, they can't do it in in place of their citizens on this one. And the court said they're not disturbing that. But Paris patria, Paris patria. There you go. So they're not disturbing that, but they are um, saying, "Well, look, they they have standing here, and the harm is irreparable because they're losing employees and and they're they're putting out costs that can't be recovered to um, implement this, and uh, and you know they they cite their OSHA their OSHA case quite a bit, um, which is BST the BST case we've discussed before where." Um, OSHA couldn't just make up a vaccine mandate and say, ah, all businesses.
0: That would be the case where the Fifth Circuit raced to put out its, its opinion before the lottery took place and assigned the case to the Sixth Circuit. <laughs> That's it.
1: That's exactly <laughs> right. So, but what they noted is they said, and it's not like, and the other thing, it differs from the Medicare and Medicaid um, mandates in that Medicare and Medicaid have tied to vaccination. Um, Almost since the inception of those of those statutes, and it had been a long time um, uh, habit of not only uh, the administrations to require this, but all the hospitals, everyone else. There was just a lot more in the record in Medicare and Medicaid to say, "Hey, look, uh, it's been done for a long time. Everyone thought that that this is um, part of it, part of getting the funds, and so we're not going to we're not going to upset the long standing practice." On the other hand the Procurement Act has never been used this way before. This is a whole new imposition on the federal workforce um, for non-economic matters. Now, the dissent kind of says, well, I mean, it is interesting to me that the dissent is is saying that um, basically because this was first used as a civil rights uh, weapon against discrimination, that everything they do thereafter is good, (laughs) I think is kind of how he looks at it. But I, I think what I think it gives a little bit of, um, and and the other one they use is the Obama administration required all the contractors to give people seven days paid leave um, if they contract with the federal government, but it was never challenged in court, so it's not really precedent. Nobody challenged it; they all went okay because you know federal contracts. I, they were
0: already giving more than seven. Well, days yeah, exactly. Anyway, I, I
1: think there's that, and I also think the federal contracts were valuable enough that okay, fine. Um, they weren't going to lose any employees over it either, right? Because you don't lose employees from that.
0: Right, which you might with a vaccine mandate. Right, exactly. So um, there, wasn't,
1: there wasn't reason to. So this is a very good opinion. I don't think this is the last we'll see of it. And obviously, um, it will go to some of the other contractor cases around the country. Um, and, and we'll see what happens. But I think the next shoe to drop in this should probably be Feds for Medical Freedom, uh, w- w- which had to do... Um, as long as it's not the next needle to drop. Uh, yes, exactly. Um, and, and, you know, I do think this is also not just the Fifth Circuit, this is another in a string of the fact that as we get further and further along in the pandemic, the courts are not uh, inclined to just uh, let the government do anything it wants to people. And I think this is another data point in that uh, line. So we'll be back in a few minutes. Is it
0: Welcome back to Administrative Static with Mark and Vec, and we are joined by our NCLA colleague, Peggy Little, Senior Litigation Counsel here at the New Civil Liberties Alliance. Welcome back to Administrative Static, Peggy. Thank you, Mark. So we're excited to have Peggy here because uh, uh, she is fresh off of her latest uh, victory, and so uh, it, this is actually a matter, I don't think, Vec, that we've talked about on the program uh, before, but it's an interesting uh, little uh Freedom of information. Well, I started to say Freedom of Information Act, but is, is it? This is in Connecticut state court. So, is this the same? Uh, is it called the same thing in Connecticut as it is at the federal level, or is it a different statute?
2: It is called Freedom of Information Act, FOIA.
0: Okay. Yes. And, and then tell us what's uh, what's going on in this case. Uh, why NCLA is is involved? How you got interested, and and so forth.
2: Well, the underlying uh, information that we want to get from the Connecticut Attorney General is information about their uh, acceptance of funds from Michael Bloomberg to fund attorney, assistant attorneys general by the state that pursue Mr. Uh, Bloomberg's uh, agenda of suing the oil companies uh, for climate change damage.
0: And there are a lot of states that have accepted this money, right?
2: That's correct. And there are serious concerns with any government entity taking outside funds to pursue the funder's uh, agenda.
0: Well, right, because if you had outside folks who could just come in and fund government slots and sort of treat those government employees almost like they worked for them, then you're allowing someone to privatize the power of the state, essentially, aren't you?
2: Absolutely. It's it's a matter of due process and in many cases also legal and ethical concerns under the applicable state laws and constitutions.
0: Conflicts of interest and things like that. Well, even
2: the funding, because all funding is supposed to be uh, approved by the legislature and may only be expended by appropriation. And this sort of outside, what I would call end-run funding of particular agencies is wildly illegal under the Connecticut state laws and constitutions.
0: Right. So one one way and probably the main way that the legislature is able to uh, regulate the amount of prosecution that the executive branch does is by controlling the budget of the prosecutorial agencies, the, the the attorney general's office or whatever prosecutorial agencies exist in the state. If those agencies are able to go out and get additional outside funding outside of the normal appropriations process without the legislature say so then they're able to do more prosecution than the legislature has, has approved.
2: And it's not like this is unknown. Way back in um, the time where Joe Lieberman was attorney general, he wanted to try to fund extra attorneys uh, from antitrust suit awards. And the Connecticut legislature said, no, no, no. And they had uh, in some negotiations. The legislature did increase his funding and and added a few special attorneys general, but that was all done Legislatively, not through side arrangements.
0: So, so tell us a little bit more about this particular uh, sort of uh, controversy that was just adjudicated this past week, and what the what the uh, sort of uh, importance of this decision is for for the next step of the litigation.
2: It's a procedural um, uh, ruling. It has to do with whether you have to take separate appeals of FOIA requests that were consolidated and decided together below and the attorney general's office has been fighting this tooth and nail for years and they came up with a new argument that uh, we had had uh, two um, matters before them they were heard together consolidated decided together um, and uh, they came back and said no you need to have separate uh, appeals and guess what you're out of time on one of them so you're out of luck it's a hyper-technical ruling that we were so pleased with the judge's um, concern with due process and the fact that there is actually no rule one way or the other as to whether you need them to bring them separately or together. And he uh, took account of the fact that the uh, Freedom of Information Commission had consolidated them below. And so by creating that consolidation, it was a denial of due process to knock out one of the appeals
0: so it had to live with the consequences of its own prior action
2: yeah and he he, he said they were they were in control of the proceedings not certainly not the uh person petitioning for review so and
0: including in terms of the statute of limitations i mean they decided when the decision came out right
2: absolutely and um and it's a very strict deadline so we were pleased that he was concerned with the due process implications of the commission to act in this manner But the underlying decision is also really interesting because we had won before the hearing officer at the commission and that win was unanimously approved. This is the
0: Freedom of Information Commission.
2: Yes, because what they assigned hearing officers, we had a full hearing, everybody put on their evidence. We won before the hearing officer that went before the commission.
0: On appeal to the the full commission. Uh Yes,
2: and the full commission unanimously approved it, uh-huh. and then about uh, 45 days later later issued a notice that it was going to reconsider it, and they completely flipped the decision.
0: Unanimously the other way. Yes. With two people absent. Correct. Very suspicious.
2: Indeed. <laughs> so we brought suit in Superior Court, and we were pleased to uh, have received this first ruling from a judge who seems to care about due process. One thing one of the reporters uh, noted to me who was covering this hearing is The biggest thing he took away when he studied law is that justice is impossible without rigorous adherence to rules of procedure that are known before the uh, onset of litigation. And that's a theme you've been working on in these podcasts uh, throughout, that one of the things these administrative adjudications do is they deprive people of the benefits of the rules of civil procedure and known rules that protect uh, the constitutional and legal rights of Americans.
0: Absolutely. Although when you uh, when you sent me news of this uh, victory, you quoted a different uh, legal scholar.
2: <laughs> Mona Lisa Vitti. That's the
0: one. Yeah. That's the
2: one <laughs> <laughs> who was known to stress the importance of procedure.
0: That's right. That's right. Uh, and for those who have not seen that movie, uh, you've missed out. But uh, um, So what happens now? What's the next step now that you have secured this uh, victory in the process? Uh, uh, is it the Superior Court of Connecticut? You're, you're a Connecticut lawyer, so you know all of the, uh, the local jargon.
2: Yes, uh, it's the Superior Court, which is the Court of General Jurisdiction, in which um, all civil matters are first brought. This is an administrative proceeding, so the rules are a little bit different. Um, but we um, are encouraged by this first ruling, and we hope to vindicate um, the public's right to know how the Attorney General's office is funding its prosecutions.
0: It, it seems like a basic transparency point.
2: Absolutely. There's absolutely no reason why this should be concealed from the public.
0: So why are they fighting this tooth and nail, do you think?
2: Because well, I mean, they have a they, problem.
0: What are they trying to hide? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, as I tried to explain earlier, there are real constitutional and legal problems with accepting outside funds to fund the business of the office, especially when those outside funds are uh, devoted to a particular agenda which has not been uh, necessarily uh, decided upon by people who are accountable to the uh, Connecticut Connecticut citizens.
0: So what might have happened here is that, at least it's possible that the attorney general's office accepted funds. And whereas last time under uh, then attorney general Lieberman, later Senator Lieberman, Lieberman, later vice presidential candidate Lieberman, uh, He went to the legislature and said, I'd like to hold on to these funds. And they said, no, but there was a negotiation here. We might have an attorney general who just didn't bother to tell the legislature that the funds had come in and just started using them without authorization.
2: Well, that's what we're trying to figure out. I I believe the the Bloomberg funded these fellowships through uh, NYU's Brennan Center. And then those uh, assistant attorneys general were sent to the various states but that's still accepting outside funding for the salaries of people who are performing uh, government work and exercising the power so of the if state.
1: It's, if it's the Brennan Center, these are living constitutional
0: actors.
2: <laughs> that provide living bodies <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. to, the,
2: to the states, yes. But it
0: shouldn't really matter whether it's from the Bloomberg Foundation directly or indirectly. It, it, it's the, the rules are the same in terms of accepting outside funding. It's not as though if you Wash the money through some good government group that now it's okay.
2: Oh, uh, indeed. I I like to explain this uh, to folks by flipping the politics on it. If you imagine the NRA funding assistant attorneys general to protect gun rights uh, in the states by providing free lawyers to do that, or um, someone challenging alternate energy uh, systems funding, uh, or someone
0: to sue abortion clinics. E-
2: exactly. Yeah. If you flip the politics, people get it fast. And again, to to talk about the fact that uh, due process requires rules to be known beforehand, they have to be fairly and equally applied across the political spectrum.
0: Right. So, so that's the other issue here. It's not just that you have this outside funding that's not under the control of the legislature, but you also have the higher, even though the attorney general is presumably signing off on whoever is being brought into the office, you still have the vetting and the. I mean, they they're picking from a pool of potential candidates that has an ideological pre-commitment, and that's not what you're usually looking for in a prosecutor. You don't usually go looking for a prosecutor and saying, "I wonder if I could find someone, John, that has an ideological pre-commitment on this issue that they're going to be prosecuting over that." That's not usually a recipe for justice.
2: No, and there's a lot of good case law. It's older case law, but it. Um, for example, a case out in California where someone contributed, uh, I think it was a long time ago, $13,000 for the prosecutor to go after a particular person. And that was held by the California Supreme Court to be a violation of due process.
0: Yeah, as well it should be. That that sounds like a particularly egregious uh, example.
2: But this is really no different.
0: No, it's, it's just a little more complicated, but and, it's the same principle for sure.
2: And there's more money involved.
0: Right. Yeah, lots more. Uh, and lots more where that came from, too, because this is still if this is happening, it's still going on, that the, this isn't something that happened 10 years ago and we're just finding out about, this is
2: well it, possibly
0: an ongoing stream of revenue?
2: It, it certainly happened recently, where I think it's possible that the um, states have, have awakened to some of these concerns and that they've either decided to take these people on, on their own budget. But um, certainly it's, it's something that has happened in the last few years and needs to be brought
0: well, thank you for bringing it to our attention and the audience's attention here at Administrative Static, Peggy, and good luck uh, as you continue pursuing this matter.
2: Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you.